0: Hey everyone, this is Guns, and welcome to another episode of the C-Table podcast, where we try to make sense of everything going on in European technology. For this episode, I'm talking with Brad Vivens. Brad is a venture investor at TechNexus, a Chicago-based venture capital firm. His focus is Europe and operates out of Paris. On top of that, he writes Venture Desktop, a weekly newsletter that he describes as an ongoing exploration of the ideas and trends shaping the innovation economy. Brett and I discuss Spotify and the future of audio, wellness and the power of incentives, the future of cities in a post-COVID-19 world, and what makes Paris, where he's based, a unique technology hub. Brett is a fantastic writer, an even better guest, and I found this conversation with him extremely insightful. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey Brett, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, I'm excited to talk. So you're from the US, you've been uh, in Paris for how long, for the past couple of years at this point? Yeah, about two years, yeah, just about two years now. Let's talk a bit about Europe versus the US. This is one Mm -hmm. of the questions that everyone has been asking. How do you see that dichotomy, particularly when many US funds have been looking or moving into Europe?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think the first the first thing you hear anytime you talk to you know an investor or people that are a part of an ecosystem here in Europe, whether it's you know Paris where I'm based, or you go to Berlin or you go to the UK, is there's just a, a constant drumbeat of people talking about how much competition there is now for, and this this is you know maybe pre-COVID a little bit, but you know I don't think that everything's going to kind of go away and change and, and things like that. I think that. Investors in the US specifically have, have really realized the depth of talent that exists in Europe, the uh, sort of global mindedness of the founders that are building companies here, the uh, ambition that the, the founders have. And you know I think investors for the most part are, are kind of sheeps. I mean, I think when we can, we can sort of say that, I mean, we sort of don't jump until somebody else jumps. Saw something today that said the best way to get an investor interested in investing in your company is to convince another investor to invest in your company. And it's kind of the same way with you know ecosystems that are developing. Um, once one investor jumps, and you know once there starts to build up that groundswell of interest and support, everybody starts looking at it. And I think that's what's happening with Europe, from both sides, from from Asia as well as from from the U.S. You know, I can kind of say just anecdotally from conversations that I have with friends and colleagues and contacts in the U.S., the interest really isn't slowing down. I think that there's you know constant interest and lots of commitment long term from those investors over there to continue tracking continue staying involved and trying to get more involved over time how do you perceive Europe as an outsider yeah maybe you know can speak to paris specifically about that a little bit because it's you know just being here it's probably the place where i have the most context and maybe the most insight but uh, i actually see paris and this might be true for other other cities as well as kind of coming out of this time period of zero sum thinking from a lot of the people that are involved in the ecosystem and i say that because i come from chicago i was living in chicago for 4 years that's where our firm technexis is based and i think there's a lot of comparisons between a lot of the european cities with regards to venture capital and startups and you can draw to to something like chicago where chicago's a you know second or third tier kind of place for venture capital in the US. It's $2 billion per year, and BC is invested in Chicago companies. So it's, it's big. It's as big as any of the kind of European cities. But for a long time, it was sort of developing. The ecosystem hadn't matured. Investors had a lot of power. And so it was very, very zero-sum thinking in terms of how, how investors viewed working with companies and helping companies. It wasn't as collaborative as it should have been. And over time, that's changed. New investors come in, new people who have had success, the second and third generation of founders who start investing back into the ecosystem happens, and you get a more collaborative group of people that are building companies, investing in companies, supporting companies. And I think that's kind of what I would say here is that I think there's there's probably this not age divide, but time divide of some firms, some people who sort of see the world through the old lens of you know, zero sum, I'm, I'm in control, that kind of thing, versus a more collaborative Emerging group of investors and again angels who are maybe second time, third time founders that are investing back into the ecosystem. That's kind of how I perceive it as an outsider. I, I draw a lot of comparisons between where I came from in the US and Chicago to what I see with, with cities over here kind of evolving and all happening at the same time. So are you long
0: parties then in a European context?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean I think you could make really good arguments for for a lot of the ecosystems and a lot of the Cities here. I think Paris specifically, you know, this is just sort of what seeing on the ground and observing in, in real time is just the interest from not just investors and not just like startups, but growth stage companies who are thinking about, okay, where do I set up in Europe? Where's the place where I can attract the most talent, both within that country who's already there, and where is going to be a place that we can put down roots that people from other places around the world are going to want to come and that seems to be happening you know with with paris specifically again sure it's happening with other places too but you know seeing really really great companies like like headspace setting up shop in paris and making that kind of their european hq or a company like snap with with zenly i mean obviously zenly is a french company but the the commitment that they've made and the talent that they've brought into the ecosystem i think there's a lot of stuff happening like that that's you know really positive and that's sort of I mean, maybe one of the things there's there's a lot of things, and this isn't a comprehensive perspective on what makes a great ecosystem, but we talked about the sort of recycling of capital, the entrepreneurs investing back into the ecosystem. and I think the the growth stage piece of it as well is is critical. once you start to get more people in the ecosystem who you know maybe they come from Silicon Valley or whatever it is, but they know how to scale companies, they know what that kind of growth trajectory looks like, and um, you just get a, a higher density of those people. I think that's great for the ecosystem top to bottom. That would be sort of the main argument in favor of uh, in favor of Paris. And I mean, I think the the government stuff, I mean, Paris gets a lot of press and notoriety for all the stuff that they've done with the French Tech Visa and the commitment that the government's made and VPI and, and things like that. And that's all great because I think, you know, what it serves to do in effect is kind of accelerate that generational change. You know, some of the companies that are maybe receiving capital now won't won't necessarily grow up and, and be huge but we sort of accelerate that churning and, and get people onto their second company third company even faster so yes a long answer short uh, quite long paris
0: that's that's a great answer thank you do you think uh, or you were saying paris is is a great place or a place where companies are flocking to scale this growth stage do you think companies can be scaled anywhere, companies can certainly started anywhere.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. And again, I think it's sort of it's that combination of things. It's that it's that capital availability and that capital interest and that long term commitment from capital providers to the market. It's that sort of growth stage and large scale operational expertise uh, and a density of those types of people. And yeah, and so I think those are those are two pieces of it. And I think that, yes, I, we believe and I believe that companies can get started and scale anywhere. And I think that's sort of driven, again, from the roots that that our firm has and that, that I kind of have in, in Chicago being this, again, second tier city that we've seen kind of now grow up and spawn some really, really big companies who have, because of the fact that there's more capital in that ecosystem, there's more interest from coastal investors, and there's a second, third generation of talent has shown that, hey, there's, there's big companies that can be built here. And I think that's true of, you know, any of the ecosystems in Europe as well. And I mean, leaving aside the sort of inflection point that we're at from a distributed work perspective that's being led by so many of the the big companies in response to the pandemic, I mean, it's it's quite incredible to see sort of the leveling effect that that might have on the playing field. I think it's a pretty complex problem that I don't know if I'm, you know, necessarily equipped or in the business of predicting exactly what that becomes, but it is certainly interesting to follow and it could have that massive leveling effect that, I don't know, maybe pulls a little bit of the, the network effect and power away from places like Silicon Valley and puts it in Paris and Chicago and Berlin and Buenos Aires and places like that. So we'll see.
0: Speaking of scale, one of the, probably the biggest European winner when it comes to scale is Spotify. You've written quite a bit about Spotify and audio and I have so many questions on this, but why don't we start by why? Why are you fascinated by audio?
1: Yeah. So I think there's a there's a bunch of reasons that audio is is really really interesting. First of all, it's kind of day to day a space where I spend a lot of my time uh, because our firm spends a lot of time in there. It's a it's a category that we've invested in quite a bit over the over the recent years. We are working with portfolio companies every day, so it's just an area where I'm kind of on the ground understanding things how they're happening in real time across different parts of the ecosystem. So that's been really fun and interesting to kind of piece all those things together. I think. With audio specifically and kind of as it relates to Spotify and, and things like that, I think there's always a, you know, whenever there's a, a large market where there's a big engagement and revenue or monetization gap, that's something that you kind of want to dig deeper into and, and look into uh, a little bit more. I think that with audio, with podcasting, with music, with audiobooks, there's sort of this desire from the consumers, this emergent demand for all of this stuff that's building up and growing and growing and growing. But the the market hasn't quite come together uh, in a way that has brought internet scale monetization to it. And so, you know, that's one thing that kind of makes it really, really exciting. You know, I think there's, there's precedence for that in things like social media and gaming. So I think that there's a large growth trajectory kind of ahead of the market there for audio. I think that the other thing is that there's really, Uh, a big opportunity for audio to become a wedge to onboard a lot of the mass market into kind of virtual reality, augmented reality. Um, I think that's kind of a a critical piece of it as we have, you know, an iPhone in our pocket that sort of serves as an edge server for AirPods and wearable devices and things like that as voice interfaces proliferate and, you know, change the way we interact with devices at home and in our office. And then even as like utility applications that we think about as kind of basic things like mapping and um, calendars and things like that become sort of more social and more engaging. We sort of get this, this pervasive contextual access to like create, consume, communicate uh, in more of an eyes up format, and I think because we're eyes up, the kind of tends to audio, and that that benefits audio greatly. So um, all of that coming together to sort of create these augmented experiences that people can have that aren't, you know, full on virtual reality. They aren't metaverse style um, fully immersive worlds, but they are these these augmented audio first experiences. And I think, you know, the the sort of the combination of all those things together is really really interesting. So. Yeah, so I mean audio is a, an area that we love and I love and will stay active in for a long time, I'm sure.
0: One of your big faces is or or the way you articulate this is Spotify as an ambient company. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with sort of what I what I talked about there, where it's this sort of extension of ambient computing. So idea of ambient computing sort of being, you know, great interoperability with this massive number of devices that I'm you know, walking by or using or talking to or touching on a daily basis and then the media that rides alongside that. So again, all, all of the stuff that, that I just kind of mentioned, there really really is that, that ambient media context where you know if a company like Spotify who starts as a music streaming business and starts thinking about how they can break down barriers to different types of content. So obviously there's podcasting, there's audio books, there's health and wellness content then starts moving into things like interactivity and things like that. If you can, if you can kind of break down all those barriers, blend all those content pieces together, pull in different data from, you know, uh, contextual awareness, location, social data, et cetera, and, and build some really, really cool experiences for people. So I think that, you know, Spotify has a long ways to go, to sort of reach that potential, but so does any other company trying to do it, you know, it becomes this, this thing where the, the winner there is, is not a streaming company or an audio company. It's a, an augmented reality company that understands social and, and knows how to connect people over audio-first experiences.
0: Which one is, in your opinion, Spotify's boldest bet?
1: I mean, I think they've, they've made a, an interesting series of bets. I think that the Joe Rogan thing that recently happened is, is far and away kind of the, the biggest thing, because that is, you know, the... The podcaster, the number one kind of personality in podcasting, and so it's a, it's a direct shot at all of their competitors. It's a, an extremely bold move. So I mean, I think that is that's far and away the the boldest bet that they've made. I think that builds off of a number of other bold bets, though. I think that, you know, they've been in this position since the early days of just blocked into a corner, um, relying on the labels for uh, rights and having to pay them an arm and a leg every time you know money moves through their platform or relying on iOS and Android for distribution. So they're always kind of caught in the middle. And so they've had to be really smart about how they kind of scale up and grow. And it's a really patient approach to, to innovating and building the company. And they're starting to, it seems like, kind of feel like they've got leverage maybe and and really take some, some bolder moves. So I think all the podcasting stuff that they've done, and, and a lot of the, the, the advertising things that they've done recently as well are both kind of hints at how, how bold they want to be as a company. So it's been, it's been good to see. I, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm optimistic about Spotify. I love Spotify, but I think that you know, they're a company that has a lot of challenges. And so they're, they're working their way through that.
0: If I think about Joe Rogan, I think about him as the first domino, right? And many more should come. What are the second order effects of all those dominoes tilting?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, I think there's a there's an interesting analysis done by Ben Thompson, who you and I, you know, probably both read pretty religiously at Stratechery around the time of the the Amazon acquisition of Whole Foods a couple of years ago. And it was sort of this idea that Amazon has this culture where they build something to become their own best customer and then they distribute that out to the market. So, you know, that's things like AWS, that's things like Whole Foods. And I think that's really what what Spotify is doing here with Joe Rogan, and even before that with The Ringer and Gimlet Media, which they bought, where this becomes an opportunity for them to test out a couple of different things. So, you know, with The Ringer and Gimlet Media, it's going to be a big test of their ability to do streaming ad insertion at scale. So they're not making those exclusive, but they're still distributing those broadly to other podcast platforms. But it's a way to test out their new streaming technology at scale and kind of build up, those capabilities and build up credibility so that they can then bring other creators, other podcasters into that realm. And I think the Joe Rogan thing is similar where Spotify has never done a great job with video for one. They've failed with that in the past. They were doing interesting things with social at the very beginning, but that's sort of fallen by the wayside. And now they have this built-in creator who they can build a very focused video solution around. I mean, you go on his, his YouTube channel and he's got millions of views on a YouTube video and and thousands and thousands of comments with each episode. And so that sort of says, okay, great, we've got this, you know, ability now to build a very focused video product, a very focused kind of social and community product for him and for his audience. And then eventually scale that out to provide value to other creators. So I think those are kind of the, you know, the, the acquisitions are one thing. I think the next dominoes that kind of fall are them proving out that this sort of be your own first and best customer Actually works for this category, and then uh, who knows? Maybe the floodgates open from there, and they, you know, they they're you know much more attractive place for creators, which makes them a much more attractive place for consumers, which makes them a much more attractive place for advertisers, and I don't know. That flywheel keeps keeps spinning. Yeah, who knows? That's all probably a long ways off, and there's a lot of hurdles for a company like that to climb in the near term. But that's that's kind of how I think about it in my mind. Do you think Joe Joe Rowan was underpaid or overpaid? I mean, it's. It's hard to say, I guess the, the fact that the, the stock shot up by probably what, three, four, $5 billion on the back of this news, maybe a bit underpaid, it seems like, but who knows what the, I don't know all the, the details, I guess. I don't know if anyone knows all the details. So maybe there's, a, maybe there's some pretty interesting payouts that, that come down the road for, for him, but I don't know. I, I feel like he probably, uh, he's probably not hurting too bad. He probably did okay in this, in this deal, even if he's a bit underpaid. <laughs> You were mentioning all the
0: challenges that Spotify has been sort of fighting. Uh, and I say fighting because you described this very visually. You mentioned the four pranks mm-hmm. that Spotify has been dealing with. And you walk me through those, but more specifically the last one, which is social, which is the one mm-hmm. we were discussing. Because you said yeah. no category is won until the truly social product takes off.
1: Yeah, and I, I saw that on from somebody on Twitter, and I thought it was really interesting. It wasn't something I'd ever thought of before, but it, I think it makes sense intuitively as you sort of look at the types of products that have had success over the last five to ten years in the in the consumer uh, internet world. And it does seem like the companies that really own consumer demand that can get to that scale with you know incredible loyalty from users and these built-in network effects. Doing whatever, uh, then have the opportunity to scale into all these adjacent areas. I think like one of the things you always hear is you've probably seen this on Twitter and blog posts or or whatever it is, but. All of these enterprise SaaS companies become fintech companies eventually, or all these consumer companies become fintech companies. They offer digital wallets, et cetera. And that's really a function of those companies owning their own demand, owning the relationship with the consumer, and then being able to push different services and products to them over time. And it's no different in this world. I mean, you look at a company like TikTok and the just massive trajectory that they're on and the incredible engagement that they get from users. They've rolled out a music service now called Rezo in a few emerging markets and that's you know that's an example of hey this company owns social they they have this massive user base in social and then they can start offering adjacent products and so over time if a company like spotify is not able to defend against that with their own sort of uh, i guess network effects that 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 keep people in their ecosystem that keep people engaged they're at risk of kind of bleeding out over time to those to those companies that are sort of saying okay great we have this cash cow business that is Facebook or Instagram, or even the iPhone or all the stuff that Amazon has, and we can give away music streaming for free or less expensive. We can do all this stuff with podcasts and different audio experiences, and we can undercut you, or we have more cash to invest in this business because of what we do elsewhere. So I think that sort of, that sort of gets it. I don't know if it answers the question directly, but I think there's, you know, there's just risks of not having a, not being a network business, not having network effects in a, in a market where you're competing with trillion-dollar companies.
0: You wrote that part of the answer to that competition where big tech essentially could be acquiring Sonos. Mm-hmm. Walk me through that.
1: We'll see how it plays out. But it's it's sort of the of same course, idea as... It's sort of the same idea as this being your first best customer until a company like Spotify owns their own distribution, even to a small degree. I mean, Sonos has Nowhere near the distribution of Google Home or Amazon Alexa or uh, anything that Apple is able to put into the market. But but because of the fact that they would have a hardware platform on which they could build and which they could say, okay, we want to do something with voice. We want to do interesting voice interactivity around a a social game or a trivia challenge or uh, create some kind of communication platform that enables creators to talk to consumers. You can do all of those things, certainly with with any of the other platforms, but being able to do it in its purest form and deliver that to, I don't know, 5, 10, 20 million people that have Sonos in their home or more, if you were to acquire them and sort of give them Spotify distribution on the other side, that, that's kind of interesting because it's, it's sort of the same idea. You can build these pure play experiences around audio, around the hardware, and then as those kind of prove out as being good, then you can figure out ways to distribute those onto other platforms, but you probably can't build the sort of purest form products that you want without owning your own platform and owning some of your own distribution to a degree. So very speculative and, you know, kind of a fun thing to do. I love It's one of my favorite things to do is just sort of sitting there and thinking, okay, how, how would this play out if this company bought this company or they did this kind of a deal? I think that's just kind of fun parlor game to, to play sometimes. And in this case, it seems like there's a credible, a credible case that there could be something there.
0: I think both you and I use Twitter in the same way, right? Just talk out mm-hmm. loud. I think you articulated better than I ever could, which is play parlor games. You also had this one on I think it was Snapchat acquiring Bird or something like that or mer- like mm-hmm. merging with Bird. Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean it's the same it's the same idea of like it, you're right, like it is it Twitter's of I guess the world's biggest sort of, I don't know place to play games like that, where you, you have an idea, you can put it out there, you can get feedback. You can, you know, if you, if you do it right and build the right relationships and there's millions of people on Twitter that do it much better than I do, but you can really sharpen your own thinking. And I mean, meet great people as well, which is, which is so cool that allows you to sharpen your own thinking too. So it's a really great sort of tool to, to improve, which is kind of funny to say this, this, you know, app that has so much of a, a terrible reputation in many ways. And, and frankly, is something that is uh, it, it takes up probably too much of my time, but at the same time I can kind of justify it because the, the number of people that I've met through it and um, the conversations that you get to have on there. So yeah, it's a, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting sort of piece of the broader like learning and improving uh, puzzle, I'd say.
0: You're using Twitter essentially the same way I use Rome, uh, Rome research, sort of building threads of threads and pulling all these ideas together. Do you do that intentionally or it's just a byproduct of, of how you think
1: yeah it's uh, probably it's both I mean I think it's it's definitely sort of how how I think I, I think I'm uh, not smart enough to come up with a lot of my own great ideas so I sort of need to like pick them from other people and figure out ways that they fit together and Twitter's kind of an interesting way to do that because again you can you can put ideas out there and see if people think it's really dumb or, or really good and so yeah, I think piecing those threads together, talking about, hey, here's a bunch of ideas for what acquisitions could look like in the world of ambient media, or how does virtual reality come together with consumer health to do interesting things and finding different people who have said stuff, pulling their thoughts together, adding your own flavor to it. I think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly do that sort of in my own notes as I'm writing things down as well and try to keep good tabs on that. But uh, Twitter but Twitter's a perfect way to test some of those beforehand.
0: I often think of you as a connector uh, to be honest, like not in the traditional sense of connecting people, but rather connecting concepts. And I think that's an underrated skill. It's really cool to see how you pull all these things and build them and write about them in in your newsletter. One or a great example is how you developed Alex Danko's uh, positional scarcity concept and tie that with your view on economic oceans. Let's talk a bit about your concept of economic oceans. That, that was, to me, one of my favorite Venture Desktop articles.
1: Well, thank you. I, I think that it's sort of an, an outreach or, uh, you know, from just what I do day to day, which is, you know, we, we invest in mostly early stage companies across a ton of different categories. And we also work really, really closely with a number of different corporate partners in all of these different categories from, you know, consumer audio and media to areas like aviation and travel and supply chain, health and wellness. It really touches everything. And what we really see is like a lot of the most interesting companies that are being built and being scaled today don't fit neatly into any one industry in the way that we sort of traditionally define them. They, they all sort of flow between different things. They, they understand. You know, maybe they sit at the intersection of how uh, cities work and how commerce is evolving or the way that we need to think about work and the way that cities are evolving. They they sort of sit at the intersection of all of these different massive pools of attention and economic value. And that's sort of the the idea of economic oceans. And I think I've sort of laid it out as like, you know, there's there's areas like, work and well-being and cities and industrial sort of technology and commerce, just sort of these areas that don't fit a specific vertical, but are these, again, broad pools of value and attention that sort of slosh around and fit together in interesting ways to, to create progress and create innovation when the, right, when the right companies kind of come to them and, and find that right intersection.
0: One of the highlights for me was how you assess COVID based on the shift in economics of distance. Can you walk me through that and how should funders and investors think about COVID?
1: Yeah, it sort of goes to what you talked about with Alex Danko. He's a great writer. He's written a number of things about positional scarcity, which is, which is to say if you know, something is, is rare or has the, the sort of outward-looking view of being prestigious or luxurious or expensive, there's value to it that's not necessarily rational. And I think that's a really interesting concept for the time that we're in right now As everybody's debating, hey, does how does business travel evolve in the future? How does education evolve in the future? Are we gonna go back to our offices and you know, there's been this like massive dislocation in what you what you said, the economics of distance, which is basically, hey, over time, you know, doing things remotely, having these kind of conversations has been getting just massively cheaper. But at the same time, a lot of the stuff that we would maybe do in person, flying somewhere for a big business meeting, or going on site for for college, has also kind of gotten less expensive as well. So there's those two things at play, which is like when we're thinking about covid and we're thinking about changes that are going to happen you sort of say one you know is this an area that is long term impacted by this dislocation in the economics of distance is the thing that you know we couldn't do before because of some cost barrier completely broken down now and we've sort of broken through this this i don't know societal wall that says okay we can do this remotely now we can function remotely now we can function from a distance so that that's one piece of it and then i guess the positional scarcity piece is some of those things that are much cheaper to do now because we've sort of said, hey, yeah, we can do uh, college education remotely. Well, some of the universities might actually do just fine coming out of this because they have that prestige, they have that network built in—the Harvards, the Stanfords, things like that out of the world. So, so yeah, it's sort of this this idea of like, okay, understanding um, does this market the characteristics of what's happening here have a positional scarcity? You know, is is it high or low, and then are uh the activities sort of impacted negatively or positively by, by the economics of distance by the shift that we've had recently?
0: You spent a lot of time thinking about the personal fitness category, which I think it's becoming rapidly one of the most interesting ones with COVID, the mm-hmm. shift in economics of distance. Yeah, uh, exactly. and it's even like wellness is one of your economic oceans. So mm-hmm where do you think we're going with fitness what are the non-obvious impacts of covid on the wellness industry or economic ocean
1: yeah i mean i think there's a few and maybe they maybe they are sort of obvious i mean i think the thing that everybody sort of says right now and it's a, the common thing to say is like hey this isn't creating new behaviors it's it's sort of pulling everything from the future ahead a little bit and i think we're, we're seeing that play out in real time as it relates to fitness and wellness and health and I guess like one of the big, one of the big ideas or the theses that we've sort of been developing and working on is like, there's this, it's almost this three staged kind of evolution of the world of fitness and wellness and things like that. And it was sort of the, I don't know, 2010 to 2015, you had Fitbit coming to market. You had some of the first running apps and calorie trackers and walking trackers and things like that. So that was sort of like this, this early state, you're just tracking what you're doing. You're not really providing actionable feedback. You're not providing any hooks that keep people in the product. That then evolved into where we're sort of at today, the last five years, which is the Pelotons of the world and the Stravas and the Zwift, which kind of layer community and content on top of that tracking to sort of create um, more engagement and more retention for users and things like that. And where I think we go from here is really digital health and wellness and fitness starting to eat into healthcare system more generally with, you know, again, more precise tracking and more precise ability to understand what's happening with people, coaching and care from a distance. I think that's a big thing with telemedicine that's sort of broken down. And now there's this this barrier that's fallen where people are more comfortable with that. And that's kind of helping to accelerate this trend. You get You get all of these things kind of coming together. And we, we talked about a little bit earlier, this idea with audio that you have this pervasive access to information and to content and to communication. I think that flows through to the way that we care for ourselves as well. And so I think, yeah, I think it's sort of this like next generation where the things that we think about today as fitness and wellness start to really eat into digital health in a big way. And, you know, hopefully that, that helps with things like prevention and a faster response to, to illnesses and uh, challenges that people face.
0: You riffed on an idea like, the lambda school for wellness have you
1: developed that further not really i mean i think it's a it's sort of this based on this idea that you know if people are healthier they have more success in life i don't i think that's kind of an obvious thing to say you know if you're you're mentally and emotionally healthy you're probably going to have better relationships you're probably going to do better in your work or in your school and so there's there's a lot of statistics that show that hey if you're exercising x amount per day or you have even some body mass index or you have you know some some markers that sort of show you're active and engaged in trying to improve your health you end up you know earning more money and all of these different things. And so it was sort of this idea of, well, that's maybe a skewed statistic because the people that understand how to do that and have the access to the tools to keep themselves healthy and have the economic opportunity to to do that aren't the people that need it the most necessarily. And so similar to Lambda School, who sort of said, okay, you don't need to go to a hugely expensive university to get a computer science degree. Is there a way to bring education and access to experts and access to the right kind of support and care at scale for health and wellness to a broader community and do it in a way that is sort of aligned economically so that you're not taking too much money out of people's pockets right up front, or you're not having to work through various healthcare systems, which can always be such a big challenge across the world. Like, is there a way to do that in a way that's aligned, like something like Vanda School does with a, an income share agreement? Not to say an income share agreement is the right approach for this, but that was kind of the idea. I don't know if there's, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if there's a, a real play there. I mean, obviously, being healthy probably doesn't impact your economic success as much as going from no degree to a computer science degree. So it's maybe not as much of an obvious solution for what works there. But I do think there's always just this, like, if you can provide better education, better access, cheaper, faster, et cetera. It's a, yeah, it has a pretty profound effect. So that's sort of the, the broader idea around that. Maybe the, the
0: income share agreement is not the right solution, but I think you're looking at the problem from, uh, with the right lens, which is broaden the access, lower the barrier to entry, and then, uh, which I think it's, it's the key thing about Lambda, uh, align incentives uh, in right. the right way. Exactly. So mm-hmm. What are the most underrated economic oceans, in your opinion?
1: I think that health and and sort of this well-being and wellness aspect is is quite underrated. I think mainly because we don't think about it for the most part in the same way as we think about how we spend and consume products in other parts of our lives. There's sort of this like there's this barrier between in a lot of cases how consumers perceive healthcare that they're getting, or, you know, they don't necessarily think as deeply about how they can, how they can take care of themselves as they might about different products that are more accessible, that are right on the shelf, sitting in front of them, that kind of thing. So I think that, again, kind of going back to this, this idea that we're at an inflection point here, where there's going to be some major walls that break down and provide more direct to consumer access for, for really interesting applications of self-improvement in healthcare. I think that that's one that is probably underrated by, by most people. It's obviously a massive category of economic spend, but I think that, yeah, I think that that's certainly one that is interesting and and quite compelling. You know, I think that there's, there's definitely interesting blind spots that a lot of us have around work as well. I think that especially in the, you know, the tech community and if you're a person that's sort of always following the latest news, you see all of these incredible announcements about companies raising tens of millions of dollars at billion dollar valuations for productivity products for people like you and I, those are great tools. I mean, we use them, we love them, we pay for them, they make a big impact on people's workflow. But I think that there's a, you know, one of the underlying things with work is how do you sort of more effectively serve the three or 4 billion deskless workers around the world? And that's, you know, that's a big, big area of opportunity. Especially now, as as all of this stuff is shifting, how do you uh, help those people find economic security? in a world where jobs don't exist in the same way as they they always have. How do you help them be safer on job sites or in their day-to-day work? Those are often physically challenging jobs. So, I mean, it's not to say that there aren't a lot of venture capital dollars and attention being paid to those things. Uh, There definitely are by really great firms and really great founders that are building these companies. Um, But that's a big area of, I think, interest that's going to come into clear view in terms of how valuable it is and how important it is for, for everybody to be paying attention to in the coming years.
0: What about cities? What do you think about cities as an economic ocean?
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a sort of a, a conversation going on now where everybody is is stuck in their small city apartment and saying, oh, I'd love to have a yard and would love to be out of here and I'm not going to need to be in this city anymore because of, uh, you know, my my work is letting me work from home until 2022 or forever and so there's sort of the the forces like that that are pushing uh, against urbanization and uh, pushing people to say oh cities are going to be harmed by this and there's going to be you know we're going to see sort of a bleed out of cities I mean you know I, I think cities are just the the greatest invention people have ever had and they're just the the most profound source of wealth creation and, and economic opportunity that exists for everyone and so I think what we might see is I don't know a a, a Move to call it second tier cities or third tier cities that that sort of uh, start to get stronger and start to be benefited by something like this. But I don't know. I, I think personally i'm I'm very excited about the future of of cities and even the even the short term where there might be some dislocation or disruption in the way that real estate works or a you know really unfortunate kind of flush out of so many small businesses, they're going to be hurt. I think that I don't know, I'm pretty long cities in terms of what they can do for ideas and for people and uh for society in general
0: what are the problems we should solve for people to stop saying that we will all move out of cities because that's sort of the narrative right now we're all Mm -hmm. going back to the god skills
1: yeah i don't know i think you know there's there's going to be some some pretty interesting things that happen around mobility, I think, coming out of all of this, which is to say, you know, in a city like Paris, where so many people take the Metro, does that, that just mean that we resort to driving our cars around now because we're scared to to go into the the subway or, you know, something like that? And I think that's a big risk for cities. I mean, we could, we've sort of spent the last 20 years putting in bike lanes and making streets more walkable and making these squares that don't have cars and making cities more livable generally. And without sort of, I don't know, a concerted effort on the part of people, on the part of technologists, on the part of urban developers and governments, there's probably a risk that, that you could sort of go back to that and people just say, well, I still need to live in the city because of my job or because of X, Y, Z, but you know, I'm going to take my car now. And so, I, so I guess one of the things that I'm saying is we really need to think carefully about what mobility looks like in a world where we don't feel as safe going into the subway. And does that mean bike lanes? Yeah, absolutely. Does that mean, you know, one of the things I've always thought is like, one of the greatest enablers of opportunity and happiness and health is like, if if cities could just get more cycling and micromobility infrastructure into the cities. And I think that that's as true as ever now to, to make a very concerted effort to ensure that cities don't revert to, you know, what we may have had 20 years ago and that they remain extremely livable. Is that then not a bet, but a an argument
0: for second or third tier cities, which is what you were saying? Because at the end of the day, second and third tier cities are usually smaller than Mm -hmm. uh, tier one cities. So you can bike around, I don't know, Barcelona, but you can't really bike around. Paris, you need the metro, you need the car, you need the bus. How do you think that plays out? Mostly, f- yeah, how do you think that plays out?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think what what we're seeing right now in Paris is this massive push to to sort of reset the infrastructure and say, okay, when this comes back online, when, when life gets back to normal, whatever that means, there's not going to be cars on this street and this street and this street and this street. This is bike only. We're expanding the bike lanes here, et cetera so i think maybe maybe that's a, a part of it is, is cities that have made progress already and have seen sort of what can happen when you do when you do make significant shifts in modality could be more motivated to not let that slip away and not lose what they've gained through that i mean i think paris is a good example they've made a ton of progress in in recent years in you know infrastructure level shifts to, to help people get around more safely on bikes and scooters and walking and things like that. And I think if you've sort of come out of that and you're now at a place where you know it was improving and improving, but you have this potential behavioral reversion that could occur. Like maybe as a city and as I mean, as people that live in a city, you're more motivated to to stop that and keep that going. Um, so maybe that's an argument for you know dense cities that have made progress in recent years. Yeah, I think the challenge with with a lot of smaller cities is they're just not as dense and they're not as small and you can't, you know, like at least in, maybe in the US, like in the US, for example, a lot of the second and third tier cities are actually massive from uh, from an area perspective. And so biking and things like that aren't quite as feasible as they might be in like a smaller European city. So I guess geographically dependent as well.
0: Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. So most people don't know this, but I, I lived in the U.S. for a bit in Cincinnati, which is it's the city is small-ish. But so then, my family
1: lives My family lives in Cincinnati. Yeah. Really? Uh,
0: that's interesting. So you've been there. So the city is yes. small, uh, but no one lives in the city. Everyone lives in mm-hmm. the suburbs, in Mount Adams, and like Clifton, maybe uh, with the universities. is. Right. So that, that definitely applies to that. But if I think about Barcelona, that yeah, you got suburbs, right? Uh, proper suburbs, but most people still live in the city. Which is mm-hmm. I, what I'm trying to go here. Is I think people won't move to the forest. People won't move. To, will move to like second, and third, tier cities. But we'll see.
1: We're all just playing. Yeah, I don't know. we're just uh, we're just guessing. I think, but it's fun. I mean, it's certainly fun to think about. I mean, fun. Relatively speaking, it's not. You, you wish you didn't have to think about it, and we weren't in the situation at all. But I think it is just interesting thought experiments to run. And like you said, there, or like maybe I said, like there are sort of opportunities to reset behaviors and mindsets, both societally and personally, in situations like this. And yeah, so I don't know. We don't have we don't have commutes anymore. So why don't we just sit here for twenty minutes a day and think about what we can what we can make better going forward? I guess.
0: Let's let's switch gears a bit. You read, you write, you invest. Walk me through your process of knowledge management, content creation. How do you consume information?
1: Yeah, it's all it's all over the place. I think I'd be lying if I said I had a a perfect process for it. It's kind of driven by the the relative craziness of my life, especially now I have two kids at home. So it's sort of like you know I don't have the I don't have the ability to say I'm going to get up at six a.m. every morning and write for two hours and, and do all of this kind of stuff. It's a little bit dependent on them, which has actually been good because it forces me to be I don't, proactive in, I guess, designing systems that help me help me learn and help me gather information. We talked about Twitter. I think that's a that's a big source of inspiration for me and thinking for me. You know, I I use Notion religiously. I, you know, save everything that I come across, PDFs and articles and little ideas. I say that into a database in Notion and go through every week and tag it in different ways to try to do what we were talking about earlier, which is find interaction points between different ideas coming from different disciplines, coming from different people, and then pushing that through to, yeah, to what I write about and to even how, how I invest. I mean, I think a lot of the stuff that I write about is really just driven by not new ideas, but ideas that I've found from somebody else. I think the, the most valuable the most valuable sort of lesson that I've picked up over the last year, which is when I've really started to pick up my pace on writing and, and doing all this stuff was from Tyler Cowan, the economist, um, who said something to the effect of like, his he, he laid out his practice schedule, essentially, um, riffing off this idea that knowledge workers should have a practice schedule just like an elite athlete should. And what should that look like for every person? It should be different, but you should develop something that works for you and he says that you know one of the biggest benefits for him is that he writes every day but he often spends his time writing by reframing the thoughts of other people so taking something he read from somebody else reacting directly to it or expanding on it not just sitting there with like a blank page and trying to be like all right i have to be super smart and come up with an amazing idea and write about it so everybody thinks i'm smart it's really just sort of a continuous improvement process of like this person said this and i'm going to write about it today because i really strongly agree with it And I'm just literally going to write, I agree with this because of this. And then tomorrow I read somebody else that says something about a similar topic and I strongly disagree with it. I disagree with this because of blah, blah, blah. And then over time you start to kind of piece, piece ideas together, piece theses together that, that sort of fit. So it's a, it's a very like emergent kind of ongoing thing that is more than anything, kind of just fun and interesting and always, always feeds back. I think to the work that I do on a day-to-day basis investing, I think you have to sort of take some of that, I don't know, anthropological mindset to to how you invest and in, and to how you learn and gather information. What are you reading right now? So, I'm I'm reading what am I reading right now? I've I've got probably two or three books on my on my Kindle that I'm going through again and four or five books that are just kind of on my bookshelf that I'm that I'm piecing through. So, uh, a, book from, a book from Jared Diamond, Guns, Germs, and Steel. I've never read that before. It's a fascinating book so far. Uh, a book called Paris 1919, which is a, a look at sort of how the, how countries like France and the United Kingdom and the U.S. came together after the First World War to kind of reset the world and put the world back together and how terrible the job they did. I think there's some really interesting parallels to where we find ourselves today and sort of how we can think about... How we reset ourselves and and our world going forward. So yeah, so those are those are two books that that I'm kind of working my way through right now. I sort of have a little bit of ADD when it comes to to reading and and how I do all that. But again, it's sort of this idea of hey, if I read a book about about civilization uh, decline and I read a book about uh, World War a hundred years ago, maybe there are interesting connection points that that come together and I find some common ground that gives me some insight for how I work or how I have relationships or how I write or whatever it is. So, yeah. So that's, that's what I'm reading right now. What are you reading? What are you reading right now?
0: I just finished going through from third world to first, which is a book on the rise of Singapore by Singapore's founding father, Lee Kuan Yew. It's Mm -hmm. fantastic. Going through this book, it's sort of like a pre cursor to Germs and still called The Wealth and Poverty of Nations. Uh, mm-hmm. The subtitle is the perfect description, which is why nations are rich and why other nations are poor or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's mostly with a European focus. So it's, it's really cool to see, again, parallels between, let's say, the Industrial Revolution and the technology revolutions uh, from back in the 18th century to today uh, and how we're thinking about this as we go through COVID, and then I'm I'm re uh, a couple of books as well. So the one I'm I'm going through right now, as I struggle with all the pandemic stuff, is meditations by Marcus Marcus mm-hmm. Aurelius. Yeah. So, but I, I think we we have similar processes. Like, is there a reason why you keep so
1: many books open at the same time? I think it's exactly exactly that sort of saying, hey, you know, I I have had this going on in my life for two weeks, and I see a book on my bookshelf that sort of, I don't know, reminds me of what's happening. And i am like, oh, I pick it up and kind of read it and start reading it and put it back down. Same idea, sort of just, yeah, w- what feels good to read right now? What do I want to read right now? How do those things all come together? So no, no, no specific process. I think it's exactly that, which is, it's kind of fun to just read stuff and not, not feel, uh, not feel like every time you pick up a book that you have to finish it front to back. So I think that's a, another maybe important thing. Hundred percent.
0: And you were saying, you said ideas. What's your most ambitious idea right
1: now? Oh, I mean, I think the two things that that I'm sort of most interested in, and really, really passionate about, and have really, really strong conviction about, are sort of this this ambient media future. I think that you know we sort of today get stuck in in this. I don't know, the world of audio and media, thinking about all these different kind of separate things, VR and gaming and audio and blah, blah, blah. And I think that, yeah, I think the ambient media idea is one that that I'm really, really excited about, sort of this c- constant pervasive access to highly contextual information that makes us smarter, makes us more connected, et cetera so that's that's one, yeah, that that'd probably be the biggest thing that I'm really thinking about and trying to understand how it's evolving and trying to piece together how that kind of ties back to early stage companies that are being built and what that what that looks like. I think that's a
0: perfect note to end on. thank you so much, Brent. Uh, it was great having you. and thank you for your time. yeah, thanks for thanks for having
1: me on. that was fun.
0: Appreciate it. Hey, this is Guns again. If you enjoyed this episode of the Seat Table podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to seedtable.com. Seat Table is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.